Welcome to The Metabolic Link, a medical and science-focused podcast that explores the common thread of metabolism in health and disease. This is where science meets society. Hi, I'm Victoria Field. I'm so thrilled to be back with you for another episode of The Metabolic Link. Thank you so much for listening today. We've got a really uh, incredible guest on the podcast. Her name is Dr. Elena Gross. She's a neuroscientist. She's a PhD in clinical research, and she's someone who used to suffer from chronic migraines. And that's really how she got her start. In fact, the lack of tolerable and efficacious treatment is what led her to pursue her uh, degree in neuroscience at the University of Oxford and ultimately her PhD with a mission of really better understanding this completely debilitating disease that affects so many people, and hopefully ultimately improving clinical care of this condition, which she's really on her way to do. Now she's passionate about the therapeutic benefits of ketosis and the role of mitochondrial functioning and energy metabolism in brain health and neurological diseases. She's also the inventor of four patents, the CEO and founder of a company called Brain Ritual, and the creator of the community Mastering Migraine, where she really educates the public on what she's been finding within her research. And what's most inspiring is the fact that she went from a incredibly challenging place in battling migraines to now leading the charge in the metabolic migraine field through her research and her incredible work in education. I am so excited to introduce you today to Dr. Elena Gross. Elena, Dr. Gross, thank you so much for joining me today. I am thrilled to have you on the Metabolic Link. Uh, it's wonderful to see your face. Well, it's so great to see you as, as well, Victoria, as always. Excited to talk to you and uh, see all the recent developments with Metabolic Link and um, Metabolic Health Summit and all the exciting stuff that is popping up from your side. And I'm uh, excited to talk to you today. Yeah, really excited to have you here. And same with you. I mean, you're a neuroscientist, PhD in clinical research, a former chronic migrainer yourself. Um, and I know, you know, you and I have known each other for quite some time and kind of when you first got into this entire world and you've done so much in such a short amount of time in terms of like tackling and mastering your own migraine all the way to now helping so many other people who suffer from this worldwide. And, and I know you and I kind of initially bonded actually over the fact that you suffered from migraines. I have suffered from migraines big time, um, started when I was in my twenties. Um, like it does for a lot of young women, actually, I think women are actually more, it's more prevalent in women. And I think something like 1 billion people around the world every year are suffering from this. So this is like not a small problem. Um, yet a lot of people struggle to find uh, effective care. And that's actually how you came to get into this sort of line of work, because you sort of struggled to find that for yourself. If you want to kind of talk a little bit about how it all started, maybe first define what a migraine is, and then kind of go into your backstory. Yeah, sure. So it actually strikes me also, it's pretty crazy that there's something that is affecting a billion people in the world, which is more than all other neuropsychiatric diseases combined. Yeah. And it's not really much talked about, right? You go to all these conferences, migraine is never really one of the focus topics, I guess. And so patients are left on their own. And it's really, even if you go to a GP or even a neurologist, and in both of those situations, 30% of their patients are suffering from migraine, but they don't really know much about migraine either, because in the whole six years of medical training, migraine or headaches in general get like an hour worth of attention or time, right? So you have this 
this thing that doesn't kill you, but it's really debilitating and it's affecting every seventh person in the world, predominantly women, as you said, but it's like a one, one to three ratio. So men can have it as well. And nobody really talks about it. And nobody really takes it serious apart from you having it, I guess. And um, we don't really learn about it either. So when I started to get migraines, I had no idea what it was, right? So I went to my GP. He's like, okay, let's check for a tumor or whatever, right? So I had all these brain scans done and EGs and all that stuff. And then there was nothing there, which was good. But then also we didn't know what was going on. And then they sent me to a psychologist because maybe it's psychosomatic. Whenever they don't know anything, it's psychosomatic. So then they checked. And then right. I was like, why am I even sitting here? Right? I have a headache. I have these terrible headaches, one-sided. And, and at the time, uh, Dr. Google was already around. So I just Googled um, and just some of the symptoms that you might be familiar with, which is like um, one-sided, very strong headache, pulsating in quality, um, getting worse when you move, then all these associated symptoms like, such as phonophobia, so sounds heard, light sensitivity, photophobia, and then also um, smell sensitivity sometimes, and then nausea, some people are throwing up, some are not. Um, other symptoms can be in a third of patients, you have this so-called aura face, which is preceding the headache phase by about uh, 30 minutes or so. It can be 30 minutes to 60 minutes in duration. That's when you get all these like sensory disturbances, which could be flickering lights, blacking of the visual field. But some people even have motor disturbances. So they have paralysis in half of the body, which is super scary, but they can also only, only be migraine, right? And that's then followed by the headache phase. And um, the headache phase is also surrounded by post by pre-monitory and post-drome phase, which is this phase of um, the headache already, the migraine already starting without the pain starting. And this can have, can bring fatigue, yawning, thirst, um, frequent urination, cravings for food, um, especially fatty and salty and sugary foods and uh, irritability and all sorts of other things. And um, those are the three or four phases of the migraine. And when I was putting some of my symptoms into Google, it came up with migraine and my mom suddenly remembered that her mother also had all of this stuff. So then it was pretty clear and we had it confirmed by a migraine specialist, but just even getting to that diagnosis took forever. Yeah. And uh, I think things have improved a little bit, but it's still something that is um, fairly unknown. So when I realized I have it, um, I still wanted to research the brain. I went into psychology first. And uh, during that time in my bachelor's degree, my migraine turned chronic, despite me basically trying everything. So that wow. doesn't happen. And chronic just means that you have more than 15 days per month in pain. So for me, it was about 20 on average, sometimes even 30. And um, you may know that you can only take painkillers, which includes migraine specific pain medication, so-called tryptans on up to 10 days a month, because otherwise you may get addicted or you may get medication overuse headache. Um, which means uh, 10 days you're left alone in a dark room and don't know how to go with that pain and how to pass uni. So I went on all the different uh, prescription drugs and alternative solutions, tried everything. Nothing really worked uh, apart from anti-epileptic drugs, strong ones that gave me dementia. So it was like passing a degree or remembering the name of your best friend, kind of um, waking up, not knowing where you are. So I realized that's not nothing really is working. I've tried everything by that point. So I decided I'm going to go into neuroscience and uh, maybe within my lifespan, figuring out more about what migraines are actually. And potentially if I'm super lucky within my lifespan, find something that you can do about this. And then I was so lucky that I stumbled across something way earlier than I've ever imagined, which was the oldest treatment for epilepsy. And I remember sitting in that old library in Oxford, you know, in that 
aha moment, the sun shining through the windows. I'm reading this nature magazine, you know, reading upon all the mechanisms. I'm like, oh my God, this has to be it. This must work. Yep. And then I went to the uni and I already had a stipend for the PhD. And they were like, oh, there's no data on this. This is way too risky. There's no way you can do this for your PhD. Like zero chance. This is not it. So then I basically ask around in the world, um, which centers in the world research centers might be crazy enough to allow me to do this, at least as a little side project. And small city Basel in beautiful Switzerland said, okay, if you ditch your other offers, you can try that here. And so I ended up in Switzerland. Here I am today. I never regretted moving because it actually did look promising after some time. And in the meantime, I finished the PhD. I founded a startup, as you know, right, to look into this more. And I guess the unique thing of what we've done is we're trying to subcategorize migraine in different subgroups. Migraine is super common, as you know. And there's a lot of diseases out there that, in, especially in the neurology space, that are very common and very not very well understood. And what we're trying to do as humans is we're trying to treat Alzheimer's or we're trying to treat Parkinson's or we're trying to treat depression as if it was one disease. Mm -hmm. Just because something looks similar from symptoms doesn't mean that it has the same root cause. What we've done in our research is we've tried to look for biomarkers that predict who is a metabolic migraineer. And that's a term that um, we've current in the last paper, metabolic migraine being ideally the first unique or objective migraine subgroup where we can tell based on blood biomarkers. And this needs to be replicated. I'm just talking like it's already evident. This is an indication that this could be the case when yeah. it's replicated, but that there's a metabolic migraine where um, malfunctioning metabolism or mitochondrial functioning, those powerhouses in the cells, is at the root cause as why your body turns on the migraine as a warning signal to force you to rest until energy homeostasis in the brain has been restored. And um, this could affect like maybe around 50% of migraines, but not everyone. But in these people, it's very much at core to fix your metabolism and then migraine frequency will be reduced. And that's basically most of what I've done in the last couple of years. Which and is amazing. So I guess that's why I'm here today. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is amazing. And I, you know, uh, you come from a place of, of having the full patient experience with this. Yes. And so kind of to backtrack a little bit, because I definitely want to get into the root cause. And I know you've also kind of come up with, um, you know, sort of key triggers about for migraines that people can kind mm -hmm. of look out for, as well as sort of categories that you can kind of focus on in mastering your migraine. And so I definitely want to get into that. But first, what was that like for you? You know, you have such a unique experience because you're a researcher that's done such great work in really, you know, coming up with metabolic migraine or yeah, the, the whole thing, you know, having biomarkers to be able to help people down the road with figuring out why they're dealing with these nasty headaches is like a huge deal, but you come from this place of being a patient. And what was that like for you going through just the frustration of sitting in a dark room for 10 days without medication in excruciating pain, not having any answers or direction I mean, one, that's got to be pretty, I'm sure that was like your biggest fire and motivation, but that had to be pretty scary to go through. Yes. And I actually, now looking back, I don't even know how I did it all. I have no idea how I passed university. I remember that one moment where I got really scared. I know that depression luckily doesn't run in my family. So I'm never really depressed. Even at the worst times, I was kind of still hanging on to life. But I remember that second month I had 30 days of migraine oh and I was lying in a bed and I could not tolerate the pain anymore this is the point where you have banged your head against the wall because the banging against the wall is less painful than the migraine 
you put all these ice packs on your on your brain it's like freezing your skull but it still feels better than the migraine you don't know where to go where i actually had the thought of just jumping out of the window to end the pain oh it's um and um, for me the worst thing is like lack of control right i have no control when these things are coming it feels like i've tried everything by this point i have done all the dietary restrictions cut out chocolate cheese alcohol i'm going to bed at the same times now i'm waking up at the same times i'm literally not having a life i'm like doing all the exercise because they say exercise is so good for your migraine and we can even talk about that briefly as well right. i've done all the things that all the different neurologists have told me i've been to all the experts and that's also funny now that um these um, migraine center that i went to as a as a teenager all the time they're now asking me for advice and asking me to come there and change the regimen, which is amazing. It's like full circle. But the problem is they don't have a, much of a clue sometimes either, right? Because so, so little is known. So they're really trying and they're nice people, but it just didn't help me at all. So worst thing, lack of control, complete hopelessness, because there was nothing that could work when I was finally like, if this has got to change, I have to do it. And in order to make a change here, I'm going to have to study the brain, because I don't actually know what's in the cell even, right? How am I even going to understand migraine if I have no medical training, right? So, um, and this was, I guess, the only hopeful thing is was that I'm in a stage in my life and I have the grades and I might have the possibility with some drugs to actually go into the field and study it and maybe figure it out myself one day. That's probably what was keeping me alive as well as my family and friends. Of course, I know if I'd done something to me, but just the thought that maybe there can be some change within my lifespan because otherwise, and I know, I know from chronic patients, it's the same. You're trying, you're clinging on to life just for the sake of your family and your loved ones, because it's not a life worth living. And that's so important for people to understand that it's, you don't die from migraine, but it shouldn't be ignored because it's a terrible state to be in brain pain in the brain or around the brain. You just cannot ignore. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's not, there's two things. One thing that was super terrible was the pain, almost unbearable. The second one was I was missing out on life. Yeah. There's things in life that only happen at a certain, certain age. There's opportunities in life, like all the parties in uni I've missed, all the things, like all the private life, all of these events, all of the school things, like all the class trips, like final class trips that I've missed and haven't been on, right? They're not coming. Those experiences are not coming back. And right. if you have chronic migraines for decades there's only so many birthdays of your children you can miss right so many family reunions or whatever you're missing out on life and those things are not coming back so so many reasons to make a difference in this field uh, so that's, yeah uh, it a longer comes... answer of me trying to remember what it was like and um even more grateful you know waking up now not being pain being able to live life it's just the best thing ever that's so, amazing. And, and you're completely and free at this point of migraines and not completely almost. So I okay. can still get them. So you have your once a migraine or you're well, always a migraine. Right. Now, if I yep. now, if I know for me, it's like if I have a jet lag and I drink alcohol when I get there and yes. I didn't sleep on the plane and I'm stressed with work and all of these things are coming together. Yeah. My brain, you know, migraines this is the most important message. Migraines are trying to protect you. A migraine is your body saying, stop, you're not listening. We're running out of energy. This is damaging to you as an organism. We right. need to pull the emergency brake. So my body still pulls the emergency brake, maybe yes. less strongly, but if I overdo it, I still have the emergency brake that is there. Right. And but I think migraine is a preserved mechanism for that reason, right? Because another this is the second important message for people to understand is that something that is as common as migraine affecting 15% of the population is not an accident of nature. 
this is not a mutation that should have been gotten rid of. This is not a genetic print or an underlying genetic code that is malfunctioning. This is something that evolution has planned or had, has had an evolutionary advantage 10,000 years ago, which means in the reverse, our environment has become suboptimal for this genetic code. And that is basically, and we'll come back to this, down to a lot of diet, diet for the most part, but also like lifestyles, like blue light and fast paced environments and, and all the other and oxidative stress and toxins in food and all the stuff that damages mitochondria. Yeah. All of this is now leading to us having chronic migraines, but your genetics, your body's trying to protect you. Right. Totally. And um, well, thank you for sharing that very personal story, first of all, with going what you went through that, that I can't imagine um, just, you know, quality of life is kind of gone. And, and it's just incredible that you've been able to take that in extremely challenging time and turn it into something that now you're actually getting answers for people and really understanding this metabolic link <laughs> that is <laughs> exactly right with, exactly. with migraines. So yes. It's, it's fascinating, you know, that it started for you where you stumbled upon, you know, ketosis within epilepsy. And then now you you're here where you are today. Um, I mean, for, and it's, and it's interesting because there's a wide spectrum of suffering, right. For people who have migraines for me, yeah. it started when I was on, uh, actually on the air, I used to work for an NBC affiliate. I was on live at TV news and between commercial breaks, I was, <laughs> I was vomiting because of a migraine and just, yeah. and you can imagine bright lights. And it was like the worst oh, environment God, the possible worst. mid the migraine. <laughs> yes. God. And that's how it started for me was actually on air. And then it was like sporadic. I didn't have up to like 15 a month, but I had them enough to where they're completely debilitating when you do have them and, and shut down your, your ordinary life. And to this day, like much like what you're saying, if if I start slacking on things, sleep, stress management, all of those things, all of the key factors that we'll talk about, uh, it's really easy to slip back, but it's also so hopeful to know that there is a way to manage it. Um, so let's dive into brain metabolism a little bit more for people who might not be, you know, a lot of our listeners are fairly uh, well-versed in it, but kind of give us a breakdown of sort of, you've got this incredibly energy hungry organ that is essentially in your words, setting off an alarm system when it comes to a migraine, it you know, has the ability to use glucose, lactate, ketone bodies. Most people are running off of uh, glucose uh, and rarely dive into the ketogenic diet. <clears throat> but let, let's talk a little bit about sort of the baseline of brain energy metabolism and um, why ketones or why a ketogenic diet might be one key piece of the puzzle when it comes to managing migraines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, th those are things that I didn't even learn at my time at Oxford, the brain metabolism wasn't talked about much, it was mainly it's glucose periods, and uh, that's it moving on, basically, right? So that pretty much, right. maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it's very, there's um, a couple of things that are important to understand. First, the brain is one of the only organs that cannot really store energy at all. There's, I guess, evolution thought there's no space, and I guess there is not much space in there between the skull and, uh, and all these neurons. So the brain is extremely dependent on the rest of the body, the rest of the system circulation to provide it with energy. So it's completely dependent on everything else on the rest of the body to send it energy. Now, the second thing is not many energy dense molecules can actually make it into the brain because the brain is completely surrounded by a thing called, or almost completely surrounded by a blood brain barrier, which 
is built so that a lot of harmful toxins or substances cannot make it into the brain. But that also means that larger molecules such as fatty acids or proteins can many times not make it through to the brain, which is why, and you already mentioned these three molecules, the brain is dependent on mainly three molecules or different mole mole molecule groups, let's call it like this, um, to uh, meet its energy demands. And that is glucose. We all know glucose, small molecule. Then there's lactate. And then there's ketone bodies as well, mainly beta-hydroxybutyrate when it comes to going into the brain. Now, we have a brain that is completely dependent on energy uh, from the outside, and it is dependent on a fairly low amount of different molecules that can feed it with energy. Now, moving from 10,000 years back, where it actually had available most of the time three different energy sources, we move to today, where most people are eating around the clock um, because that's what we're being taught and we're eating these like fast foods uh, and very high carbohydrate rich diets which means that now because our livers have adapted to our current living scenarios our livers 10,000 years ago would have to make um, ketone bodies these are the small fatty acids that are derived from fats during times of starvation or winter where carbohydrates weren't available so quite a few months or weeks or hours or whatever out of the year our brains would have ketone bodies available as an alternative and effective energy source. And we would kind of switch back and forth between lactate when we were running or exercising or hunting a deer and maybe ketone bodies when we were starving. And then carbohydrates again when we were finding honey or some fruits. And we would be very flexible metabolically. And the brain would have that very efficient energy substrate as in ketone bodies available a lot of the times. Now, today, most of our brains are only relying on glucose, and this is what we were taught at uni, and it is kind of true, mostly relying on glucose for its energy needs because lactate and ketone bodies aren't produced much anymore. But now already just from that explanation and an engineering point of view, that's something you would never want. You always want redundancy because if one thing falls, if you only have one power source in a country, and that power source is cut off, right? You don't have electricity. That's something you want to avoid at all costs, right? And the same goes for energy to the brain. If we're running out of glucose and the body doesn't have a large storage capacity for glucose, which is a bit like if all countries were to run on solar energy, right? Then if the sun is gone, suddenly you don't have energy. So the same, similar to, to glucose, right? You cannot really store glucose very well. You cannot really store solar power very well. I might be wrong on this, but I think that is true. Same goes for wind. Um, same as with glucose, right? We have very, uh, very, very short storage capacity and we might run out of energy if we're only redundant on glucose. This is in general. Now with migraineurs, it's even getting worse. A migraineur's brain doesn't habituate. This means that if a normal healthy person is looking at a checkerboard or a white wall or some stimulus that isn't changing, they're conserving energy by switching off the firing of the neurons. And they only come back on when there's change. So a normal brain, let's say, um, only encodes for change. A migraineur's brain, interestingly, is hypersensitive. It will always fire. So a migraineur's brain, even between attacks, spends about 20% more energy to a healthy person's brain. That also makes them very often perfectionist. And again, it might have um, evolutionary preserved Reasons for this, if every seventh person has a hyper-excitable brain, um, you're lying around a campfire in a tribe, a tiger is coming, there's every seventh person is very hypersensitive. Those are the ones that are probably waking up first and saving the tribe, right? But that migraine, 
the people with the migraine have an advantage yes, here. Have an advantage here. They yes. have an advantage here. Now, in today's world, maybe not. There's not so many tigers around. Right. But, um, <laughs> but back then, right, all of this is happening for a reason, or most of this. If it's very common, it's most likely happening for a reason. Now, put in today's world, we have a very hyperexcitable brain that unfortunately in a lot of the metabolic migraineurs is matched with an energy metabolism that isn't perfect. So mitochondria aren't working. Um, we have not so much reactive oxygen defense. So there's these little bombs that are destroying things. We may have suboptimal glucose transport or glucose absorption or glucose metabolism. So there's infinite ways how metabolism could go wrong. And in a metabolic migraineur, you have the the genetic code or the genetic, um, un, um, let's say, predisposition, predisposition yeah. yeah, that you're basically spending more energy in your brain paired with a decreased uh, ability, genetic, or this could be genetic, or this could also be um, environmental, so uh, adopted during life, epigenetic, exactly, that you cannot produce energy as well, which is the perfect storm. So if these two come together, you're more prone to migraines for sure. Now, um, we can't really do much about your hyperexcitability thing. And as, as I said, right, this used to be an advantage and maybe it is today even, right? But you can change your metabolism. Yeah. And this is where all of the things that I advocate online as in like the strategies, how you can improve metabolism. This is even outside of adding those ketone bodies in. There's so many things that you can do to get rid of some of the, those epigenetic changes, to get rid of some of the toxins or oxidative stress in your life, to make those powerhouses, mitochondria work better. And all of these things are working towards actually supplying the brain with the energy that it needs so that the migraine warning signal doesn't have to be turned on. And in our review, we even talk about like, you can literally even connect or explain how it gets from a migraine trigger all the way to the release of certain pro-inflammatory neuropeptides that are turning on the migraine attack while at the same time, they're turning on ketogenesis, gluconeogenesis. So the same molecules are actually antioxidant. They're causing pain, but they're also mitigating the problem at the same time as in increasing energy availability. So it's really quite beautiful. What we do in the modern world is we take a painkiller, the energy deficit is still there, and we keep going. Right. And in the long run, I think that's just not the right way to do it. I take them too. If you have to work, if you have to do stuff, we all have to live. It's fine to take painkillers sometimes and even tryptans, the migraine specific ones, right? By all means, I don't mean suffer through this, but if you have frequent migraines, it's just not going to be the best strategy to solve the issue. Right. Long-term. Yeah. It's not something yeah. that, you know, and if you can kind of tap into potentially the foundation of what might be causing the migraines in the first place and maybe avoid some of those triggers to begin with, um, and then combine that with like this shift in, in, um, focus on four categories that we'll kind of get into, uh, then why, why not kind of tackle that? These are things you could probably do within your own home, um, you know, focus yeah. on day-to-day -day life and, and just will overall improve your well-being in general, right? In general, most of these things will lead to longevity or increase right. your health then period, right? So right. it's not exactly. even that migraine specific, totally. So there's, there's two different uh, lines of um, explaining this. So one, the, the, the root root cause is probably your genetics, right? Whether you are more prone to this, um, and we discussed this, right? The, the energy demand of your brain and so on that depends on ion channels and all sorts of things, you probably can't change that. But you can change the trigger factors in your life that leads to the attack being elicited, right? And 
if you observe yourself and you know that, for example, exercise is triggering migraines, which I didn't realize for a while because it's always delayed and everybody says exercise is so good for you. But right. if you overdo it, if you're outside of your hermetic window, right, the, the, like the window of, and, yeah, yeah, oxidative stress is super high during exercise. You can't fight it. You're running out of energy. And when you're running, your muscles take away energy from the brain, right? That's just it. So um, be careful with exercise. So if exercise triggers your migraine, if stress, lack of sleep, if you skip a meal, if that triggers migraine, you don't drink enough. If all of these things happen in your life, too much, <laughs> too much alcohol. or alcohol, alcohol, right. oxidative stress, again, mm -hmm. linked to metabolism was one of my potent my, uh, migraine triggers, but also exercise. If that rings a bell and that sounds familiar to you in your life, then metabolism might be an issue. Now, how do we fix metabolism? What I have come up with is that four pillar model, which is basically four different things that you can do even in stages and see if it already fixes the problem. You can halt and that's fine. Um, but together they should, if you are a metabolic migraine, they should at least mitigate the problem, not cure migraine. I never say that we're curing the problem because the problem is ingrained in your DNA and it's not maybe even a problem, but it should make a huge impact on your life. And the first pillar, I guess, is stabilizing blood glucose. Now, the problem is that in migraine, um, you have typically, not everyone, but insulin sensitivity can be off and also glucagon sensitivity. Nobody talks about this, but uh, migraineurs are actually glucagon resistant, which means that they cannot, in, in times of fasting or even ketogenic state, they cannot um, mobilize energy so well from their fat stores and like make fatty acids and glucose themselves from scratch. So what we really want to do here is not have these spikes of glucose. And if you have a huge spice that you eat a very processed, highly processed sugary food like a donut, right? You get a spike in glucose. Now, migraineurs are delayed in releasing insulin. So they release insulin way too late and way too much. Now, it's a bit like a broken thermostat. You're releasing glucose, then you're releasing more insulin than the glucose you have. Then you crash, your glucose goes lower to baseline. Now, what does your body do? It tells you, shit we're starving. We need more energy here. So what do you do? You're craving sugary food. So you go to the next donut or whatever. And then yeah. it's just a roller coaster, right? Yeah. And that's something that is, again, probably genetic that migraineurs can handle this fairly poorly if they're metabolic migraineurs. So what you really want to do is um, something like a low GI diet, low glycemic index diet, which can even have legumes in there, um, whole, whole grains, if you want to have grains, but really foods that are not spiking blood glucose, but having blood glucose as stable as possible so that the brain, if it can use glucose, has a constant supply. This will fix the issue only if you can really deal with glucose. If you're one of those migraineurs where that isn't good enough, you'll have to do other things. Now, that's the first step. Complex carbohydrates with yeah. good protein, fat yeah. balance. No, if not, yeah. go add over to more protein. <laughs> right. Exactly. Add more protein, add more fats, reduce the carbs, but you can still eat carbs here. You can eat fruit, you can eat whole grains, skip all processed food, skip all sugary foods. Like natural sugars are fine sometimes. And mm. um, and stick to like grains. No, no, like white flowers and potatoes right. and, and that stuff. Then second step is um, also super important, and that's micronutrients. And that's also very often completely ne neglected. Anything you do in your body, pretty much any metabolism, if you want to convert something to energy, if you want to reduce oxidative stress, no matter what you do, requires micronutrients. Now, these are vitamins, uh, trace minerals, minerals, because you have these little enzymes and these enzymes need like cofactors to actually work. And um, if you're lacking magnesium, for example, then there's like 300 reactions in the body that are not working. So 
Um, that's one thing. If you have the money to check and um, important for minerals, whole blood always, not serum. Most labs do this wrong and then you don't get an answer. In whole blood, check for um, fat soluble, water soluble, vitamins, trace minerals, minerals. And then you can supplement, target, target what you're actually lacking. And that can also fix the problem because you will have an energy deficit if you can't make ATP, the energy currency, because you're missing core micronutrients, then nothing works. If you cannot afford this or you're too lazy, and I must say I'm also not testing as much as I should because there's life happening um, between fixing your health. And um, then you can just buy a very broad spectrum, super high quality uh, multivitamin with the bioactive vitamins in there. This is super important. 95% of supplements have versions that you need to convert. But as a patient, you don't have the energy and the enzymes to actually convert it into an active version, which means you're just making expensive pee. Now, some of my favorites, and I'm not getting money here, Sunday Naturals, if you're in Europe, they're amazing. Thorn Research, they're in the US, they always have the best bioavailable stuff. Super broad spectrum one here, it's great. Now, third pillar, and I guess the first three are important for most people. Third pillar is uh, reducing oxidative stress and um, reactive oxygen species in the body. Now there's so many ways where you can tackle this and it depends completely on your lifestyle. Here's where whole foods come in. No processed crabs, don't fry vegetable oils because that makes free radicals. Cook with um, solid fats only. Uh, ideally organic if you can afford it, at least for the 12 toxic ones, toxic foods, anything that doesn't have a shell or a skin or something. Um, you say or, 12, there's environmental working group is a great spot where you can talk about where you can actually find um, sort of the clean dozen uh, foods that you're talking about that maybe are clean not 15 organic. and dozen, dirty dozen, right? Dirty clean. dozen, clean 15. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that's a good website for resources. If you're not able to afford organic, at least choose the ones yeah. that are not as heavy in pesticides and things like that. And if you, this is another hack and has recently been even a paper supporting this. I've been doing this for a couple of years now. If you don't, cannot afford uh, organic, then soak your vegetables and fruit in sodium bicarbonate. Mm, yeah. Sodium bicarbonate is like the cheapest thing ever. It will get rid of a lot baking of the toxins that are on the baking soda. <laughs> baking soda. Thank you. Yes, that's the one. Super cheap, a very, very good hack. So that's something you can do. Baking soda is good for everything. It's good for <laughs> everything. You can even make your own deodorants. You oh. can use it for washing your clothes. It's like I bring it everywhere because if I run out of something or don't have something traveling, <laughs> baking soda is probably going to yes. fix it. You know? Yes, we'll have, we'll have to do a separate pro podcast on home baking hacks. soda. <laughs> A baking yes. soda one, like what can you do with baking soda? I guess it's like a, a million everything. things. You put in your bathtub, you're more alkaline. You know, you can do. Everything. I know. I know. <laughs> it's a, it's a, yeah, okay. We'll That's take good. that to another, 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 another podcast, podcast. Yeah, another podcast. Yes. So, um, yeah. So, and then, but this extends. So, reducing oxidative stress is not just on the chemical level. You can also, then, if you're in the US, ideally don't drink tap water or have a purifier. You can purify your air. There's airborne toxins everywhere. Get rid of mold, have all this checked. Um, then, cleaning products. Oh, big, yeah. big, big thing. Ideally organic or just use baking soda in your mm -hmm. safe. Um, vinegar, baking products. soda, all the good stuff. Vinegar, yeah. baking soda. That's it. <laughs> Two things done. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, um, skincare products, uh, all of these things can have toxins. Perfume is the number one trigger that you need to watch out for. I think it's the most worrying chemical um, trigger factor or chemical hazard in the world right now because perfumes are not controlled. Like 50% of perfumes have poisonous stuff in there. It's not declared. Right? Here's why this is crazy because 
in your nose, I told you about the blood brain barrier and that it covers almost all of your brain, but not your nose. Otherwise you wouldn't be smelling. So with perfumes, those chemicals go straight into your brain and you're not protected. So this is insane. I think perfumes are going to be the next smoking. Um, oh, yeah. Candles as well. Candles are, are big culprits too, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All these like scented stuff, um, anything that lingers around for 12, 24 hours or whatever is bound to crazy chemicals to make that happen, right? It's not natural for a smell to hang around this long. And yeah. it makes me nauseous still. Even I don't get a migraine. I feel very uncomfortable around these um, scents. And it's like, it's like your taste, right? When you start eating clean, you will not like that burger anymore. When right. you start smelling clean, you will also not like those fragrances anymore. It's not like you're missing out big time. You will yeah. adapt. So, so that's that. Get rid of all of that if you can. But then there's also there's physical stress, which includes the exercise part. Don't overexercise. You can slowly ease into exercise once your metabolism improves, but don't force yourself. Stay in your hermetic zone where you can grow and don't make yourself sicker. And, um, and then lastly, and this is oftentimes overlooked, psychological stress will also make oxidative stress. And that means start saying no, right? Especially as a migraine or you're a perfectionist, you cannot do it all, it's okay. Adopt an 80-20 principle. So uh, 80, 20% of effort for 80% of the work, that's saving my life right now, right? Uh, you cannot do it perfect, everything you will not get anywhere. Um, get rid of toxic relationships. And it's also hard, right? If somebody, just because somebody has your, been your friend in kindergarten, doesn't mean they're still good for your life today. If they are more annoying than good, then just end it. It's okay. It's your life, right? Sure. Um, so clean up psychological stressor. Some people you can't get rid of, like your boss, your <laughs> close family members. If that is the case and you can't get rid of the person, you can, get you can change how you perceive a message. You can't change the person sending the message, but you're the one receiving the message. And there's several ways on how you can interpret things differently how you can have it not affect you as much. And there's uh, people that can explain this better than me, but um, yeah, the sending receiver problem, you can work on psychological defense mechanisms to yeah. not get so stressed by hurtful things that people say in your lives that you can't get rid of. So basically in the third category, it's reducing chemical, physical, and psychological stress so that your powerhouses in the cells, the mitochondria can work better. So I feel yeah. a fourth, because I know we're coming out of time, Soon, fourth pillow now is if none of this works, and it's still helpful if you do it, right, for longevity and health span, but if you still get frequent migraines, then chances are high that your body is not very good at metabolizing glucose. Or glucose, because it's not as efficient as these ketone bodies, the small fatty acids are not providing enough energy for you. And um, maybe you also need the other um, signaling properties of ketone bodies, which is anti-inflammation and um, reducing hyperexcitability in your migraine's brain, improving mitochondrial functioning, further antioxidant properties of ketone bodies. Now, if that doesn't help, I suggest you go either full-blown ketogenic diet, getting your ketone bodies up as much as you can, if your liver supports it, because your liver may have been so stressed by all this medication overuse, and ketone bodies are mainly manufactured in the liver, that you also need to watch out. If this is a struggle and you don't feel good, you don't get into ketosis easily, you also might not need to worry. Now, what I did for a long time was I basically was doing a low-carb diet, which is now also getting rid of all the grains and the potatoes and only leaving some fruit and colorful vegetables, not doing it as strictly so you don't have so much fat coming into your burned liver either, but doing like a higher fat, higher protein, low-carb diet. And then you're adding some 
exogenous, high quality exogenous ketone bodies to that mix. You can also do that on a ketogenic diet if you don't get your levels high enough. That can also do the trick. But your brain then might need this alternative energy source. Potentially, this could be lactate, but we don't have much research on lactate. So I don't want to say this, but I think there's indications that it could be lactate at some point. But for now, I think your best bet might be a beta-hydroxybutyrate, B-beta-hydroxybutyrate, so the human identical. Again, when it comes to supplements, I always opt for human identical um, preparation to maybe fix the issue. So that's the four pillars in a in a long rant. So no, that's that. great. So exogenous ketones essentially could be an option for people. So to kind of like reiterate yes. those four categories. Yes. I'm got- just, just a word of caution. Um, yep. When you say exogenous ketones, I'm not a big fan of the ketone esters that are there because a ketone ester is um, most, most of the commercial products is a beta-hydroxybutyrate molecule, which is great, bound to a butane dial molecule. Butane dial is an alcohol. You already have a stressed liver that can't handle all this stuff medication overuse. The last thing as a migraine you want has another compound that the liver has to detox. And I know from medical doctors that have been using um, ketone esters in their patients as a trial that they've seen signs of liver failure fairly quickly. So in a patient setting, I would really not recommend for a migraine patient unless they're doing exceptionally well liver wise and maybe another chronic patient or whatever to use keto esters for a long time, right? This is not about you taking it acutely once or twice a month or even three or four times, but taking two doses a day for months, I personally wouldn't recommend. So just a word of caution there. Yeah, no, that's great, great piece of advice. I also think you kind of had mentioned um, before, you know, I think it's a good idea to kind of clue in your physician who maybe might be helping you with your migraine care, letting them know some of these key pieces. Elena has a great white paper actually on her website. And we'll go over your website here at the end uh, where you really get the basics that you could even provide this to your doctor to get them on board, or maybe even a dietitian that you're working with or a nutritionist nutritionist. I think it's important to have some sort of like professional support. If you can, if you have somebody in your corner already um, to kind of work through some of these things, because as you mentioned, Elena, sometimes when you're using a metabolic based therapy for something like migraine or epilepsy or anything, really, you really want to be careful because somebody with more of a hyper excitability sort of of the brain uh, issue might see bigger shifts. in. I mean, some people with migraines may suffer from um, anxiety and depression and you may see bigger shifts. So it is important to, I think if you do have a medical professional or mental health professional to kind of work through some of this stuff, or at least clue them in on what you're planning on doing. Um, And just to kind of reiterate some of those points, which are amazing categories that you've just listed out. So we've got balancing blood sugar, whether that be through Mm -hmm. a lower carbohydrate diet with, or with complex carbohydrates, that doesn't really work. You can kind of transition over to the ketogenic diet, but not necessarily doesn't have to be for everybody. You can find balance in blood sugar through a variety of ways. We've got reducing oxidative stress and increasing Mm -hmm. antioxidants, optimizing micronutrients, and then Mm -hmm. uh, adding in an alternative fuel source. If after those three things are not really doing you justice, that may be the key. Did I summarize that? Okay. (laughs) That was perfect. Thank you. I just want one more addition because you said um, it's good to have some support in there. Maybe I also want to say that in, if you do transition to whatever your standard American diet, I think for migraine, and you might want to go cold Turkey. If you go cold Turkey on any of these, you will be experiencing probably a much worsening of your migraine state. And that's normal especially if you transition. I transitioned from like a standard Western diet 
to a ketogenic diet. Now my brain went from having at least some glucose around all the time to basically no glucose, no ketones. And it was terrible for 10 days, like the worst migraine ever. So in that period, it helps to hydrate, to have lots of minerals, um, especially salt, like table salt um, or Himalayan salt, ideally uh, a good quality salt. Um, and also maybe adding um, ketone body salts during that time may mitigate symptoms, but if I was to do it again, I would probably also give myself the time and also transition, as you just explained, go low GI first, cut out the sugars first and still have some complex carbs and then maybe go low carb and then go ketogenic so that your body has some time to shift your enzymes, to adapt to the new state and not like change everything from one night to the other. Because in a migraine, that can be really tricky. And having somebody there who has experience, this could be a, a nutritionist who's worked with ketosis before, right? Just somebody who can reassure you this is normal. And maybe it's not normal, right? Just somebody having somebody on board doesn't need to be a medical doctor if they're completely against right. it or have no experiences there. But it, as, as Victoria said, it really helps to have somebody who's done it before and has a little bit of experience here to hold your hands and reassure you at some points. Definitely. Because yeah, using it for any sort of medical condition, you can have an increase in symptoms. I mean, even with, you're very familiar with Dr. Christopher Palmer's work where he transitions uh, patients with, you know, uh, schizophrenia. And if you're not careful, you can have an exacerbation of symptoms in that transitional period. So starting slow, working with a professional is always a good idea. You know, this is, this makes so much sense what we're talking about, you know, this underlying thread of metabolism that of of course, I mean, you're, we're looking at all of these different neurological conditions, right? Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, MS, um, you know, uh, epilepsy, Uh, there's this key piece and migraines uh, of metabolism. That's sort of this thread throughout that is really exciting when it comes to thinking about the future of treatment of migraine, that said, where are we when it comes to, cause this is not yet standard of care. What we're talking about right now is something that you've really uh, come across and kind of put together through your own work and research. How far away are we from getting to this place where we can, you know, we can honestly through biomarkers or, uh, or, or what have you, we can categorize a metabolic migraineur and then start going through these processes of eliminating triggers and rebalancing brain energy metabolism. That's a great question. And just today and the day and a couple of days before, like people alert me now, there's more and more people actually talking about energy deficit and migraine and, um, and like recommending very similar things to me. So it's definitely picking up. They've heard your work. Probably, <laughs> That's I, why. I, I might assume so. Honestly, I think maybe I'm, you know, I'm putting these things out everywhere I can. So, um, maybe possibly um so things that it is maybe becoming a little bit more mainstream not necessarily in a doctor's office but even there because i'm going to all of these big migraine conventions and everybody i talk to or even on stage i'm talking about this so hopefully the field is picking this up and patients get more support even with their neurologist or gp but really like coming back to where is the field like even outside of migraine like my real goal in life is to establish metabolic subgroups of all of these conditions you just mentioned and we were just at like a, an expert group when it comes to mental health and metabolism and i think by the end everybody agreed that we should look at the biomarkers or general biomarkers not even just ours that we found in migraine but really also in uh, mental health, depression and schizophrenia and bipolar and all of these, see whether we can predict whether somebody, whether there is a metabolic subgroup, because also in these diseases, not everybody responds. And I feel like the resistance from the 
whole field in us and i said i include you there and everybody who's fighting for that cause the resistance in the field by us saying we have that new preventative therapy for schizophrenia for depression if we say it as a whole the resistance has just been massive because people need to change the whole stigma and these need to change the way they've been taught for like decades right but if we were to say look we know that there's metabolic subgroups of these common diseases. And only in these, we suggest we do X, Y, and Z. We can show you objectively these simple blood biomarkers, or maybe even that's what we're trying to go. Maybe trigger factors can predict it. Maybe there's something even simpler than a blood test where patients don't have to go to their doctor who might not want to do them or insurance doesn't cover it. Maybe even trigger factors will predict who is a metabolic migraineur so that people can self-diagnose, which would be even better or a medical doctor can just tick some boxes, also easy. But irrespective of how it goes, I really want to get the field to saying, we're not fixing schizophrenia, period. There are several forms of schizophrenia. There are several forms of Alzheimer's. We know Alzheimer has a metabolic component, but not all Alzheimer, right? So finding biomarkers, subcategorizing very common diseases into subgroups that have a common root cause. And then we can say, we're treating the root cause of this subgroup that's much less dangerous to common care to the field as a whole. And it also will make patient satisfaction way better because then you'll have a much larger success rate in clinical trials in the patient themselves. You only get the hopes up in those that are actually responding and you can be way more targeted in treatment. So I'm starting this with migraine, but we're already um, doing more trials um, starting in a month or two. So fingers crossed. Um, whenever there's money, we'll do more research. But I think that's where the field as a whole should go. Where are we? I think now this is really more like a grassroots movement. It's um, that's why I'm I'm advocating this on social media and wherever the actual patient is. I think the way this is going to change is first the frustrated patients that are trying to get control back and are in self help groups and are online and are trying to look for solutions on the internet or on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, wherever. They will then take this to their practitioner because the practitioner practitioners are much more open minded to new things. I think they will be adopting it next. The next level then um, will be the neurologists that on some conferences have seen the research or seen the research articles or um, one of us presenting or one of them on your conference or whatever. I think these like interested um, specialists will adopt it next. And only then very much down the line, it will be a standard GP who is then caught up to how this new field has developed. Where are we? I think we're probably still at the intersection between like patients starting to know about this and practitioners, but it's it's really, at this stage, it's really in your own hand. If you're a patient, don't rely on medical doctors alone. They probably won't fix the issue. They will still be prescribing drugs and they don't have the time to actually research these things. And that's just a, it's a, I think it's a failure in the system, not in the actual GP or medical doctor himself, right? They don't have the time to read the research. They don't have the time to talk to you for hours and look for root cause. And they weren't taught to think this way either. So um, yeah. So it's a good idea to be your own advocate in all of this, as well as, you know, of course, working with the folks that you have been in the medical world, but being, doing Bring them on board. Yeah. You need bring to tell them, them what you exactly. want to do. That, you need to, they don't know. You need to bring the papers and need to say, look, this is what I want to do. This is why I want to do it. Can you help me out and yeah. try this with me? And then hopefully you have somebody who's open-minded and will listen. They will not present you with a solution in most cases, I would say. Yeah, no, no, that it's um, an interesting time. You know, we, with Metabolic Health Initiative, we really wanted to 
keep all of this education open to the public, like much like our scientific conference, but also include, of course, um, the medical world to educate around metabolic-based therapies, the latest science, but it's so important to include both sides from patient to practitioner, because there's a movement happening on, on both pieces. You know, there's some really great physicians who are starting to implement this into clinical practice. And there's patients who are bringing it to their physicians and getting those uh, physicians really excited about it to the point where they begin getting involved in research. So I think there, it's so important to include both sides. Um, and it's exciting to see where the field is headed. Now you are a busy lady. You've got, you're the inventor of three patents. You're a CEO owner of a, a company. And you're also, you've got this whole migraine community. What is next for you? What is, what is your big dream with all of this? I mean, you've got so many things going on. You're helping so many people in the process, but what is your big dream uh, at the end of the day for all of this? Well, my biggest dream has always been once I've been better. First, my biggest dream was that I have a life, right? And that's how it goes. And then uh, my biggest dream was that not all the patients have to go through the same trouble that I have and really making it easier for them, presenting them with first the knowledge, empower them, empower the patient to make their own choices. Because most of the time, you're not presented with all of the choices, which is those epigenetic dietary lifestyle modifications, right? Including a potential medical food we're launching a MigraKeep, the first medical food for migraine in the US um, towards the end of this year, maybe autumn if all goes well. But also my biggest dream is really, as I said, um, subcategorizing common neuropsychiatric conditions, possibly even others into metabolic components, ideally with biomarkers, and then offering side effect free solutions that are fixing metabolism that a patient can take without destroying their health in addition to lifestyle changes. Those would, those would be medical foods. A medical food is between a supplement and a drug. It's basically a safe substance where you can use it in a disease, make soft disease claims. And, um, and that's what I'm trying to do, ideally. That's um, great. That's great. And you also have a, oh, sorry. Prevent, prevent migraines. Change the world <laughs> yes. in, the, in, the, in the neuropsychiatric space, basically. Oh, absolutely. I think you've all already made such a difference in, such, like I said, such a short amount of time going from your own suffering to now what you're putting out into the world through whether it be business, but also through this community that you've got um, is just really incredible. So where can people find you, Elena? Um, yeah. In the meantime, I actually have a website. So it's um, just uh, Uh that has a few, bit of inter- information. The launch brand, so the company's uh, name is Brain Ritual. There's not that much to find, but there will soon be a Brain Ritual website. In the intermediate, the headquarter in, in Switzerland is called Keto Swiss. And um, Dr. Elena is on all different channels. Um, yeah. So you can find you anywhere. And, and then Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Dr. Elena Gross everywhere. So if people Perfect. are interested to learn more about migraines and metabolism, they can find me there. Amazing. Lots of free resources. Thank you so much, Elena, personally for what you're doing for all of the migraine sufferers out there in the world. But it's been so exciting to follow your work and I can't wait to see what you do next. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Metabolic Link with Dr. Elena Gross. If you like this episode, please share it with your family and friends. Leave us a comment, a review that really helps us spread the message about metabolic health and metabolic-based therapies. And you can find us on both your major podcast players, but also you can watch this on YouTube. Maybe you're doing that right now. Um, And until next time, thank you so much for listening, for watching. We'll see you soon.